0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash forthewild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit forthewild.world slash donate. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. This week, we are rebroadcasting our interview with Ariel sequi durange initially released in February of 2019. In this conversation, Arielle and I speak about Unistoten Camp in so-called British Columbia. On February 6, 2020, the RCMP initiated the second invasion on Wet'suwet'en territory, making multiple arrests outside of the Unistoten Healing Center. Because of the severity of this issue, we are choosing to release this episode without musical breaks in order to get you as much information as possible. We hope that you continue to learn about the topic and use the links and resources that Ariel provides throughout the episode. To learn more about how you can lend your support directly to Wet'suwet'en, please visit unistoten.camp slash supporter toolkit twenty twenty. Now on to the show. Ariel is the executive director and co-founder of Indigenous Climate Action. Canada's premier Indigenous-led climate justice organization. Ariel is a member of the Athabasca Chipewyan First Nation and has over a decade of experience working with water protectors and land defenders in the fight against fossil fuel development. Ariel is internationally recognized and has worked with a variety of groups ranging from the Indigenous Environmental Network, Sierra Club Canada, the Rainforest Action Network, and the UN International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, to name a few. It feels really nice to have you on as a friend and comrade. And so I just want to start off by saying I'm really happy to be talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I always love talking with you. So before we really begin to dive into the questions of this interview, I think it would be helpful to clarify just a few things about the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. So the Wet'suwet'en, and of course I may not be pronouncing it correctly, are located in the central interior of so-called British Columbia, and they're comprised of five clans. Within each of these Mm -hmm. clans are between two to three house groups. For example, the Unistoten are part of the Gil-Sehu clan. And currently, the Wet'suwet'en are facing the development of a pipeline on their unceded traditional territory. The pipeline is 415 miles long, and it's a liquefied natural gas pipeline that is to run from Northeast BC to Kitimat's LNG Canada Export Terminal, which is owned by TransCanada, which is the same corporation who funded Keystone XL. The pipeline is a $40 billion project that is expected to be running by 2022. Now, in response to previous pipeline projects, The Wet'suwet'en established a checkpoint on their lands back in 2008, and in 2015, all the hereditary chiefs agreed that no pipelines were to be built on their unceded territory. However, in November of 2018, Coastal Gas Link applied for an injunction. By December, the BC Supreme Court issued a temporary injunction prohibiting anyone from blocking the bridge and ordering the checkpoint to be dismantled immediately, now, in response, Unistoten Camp refused to remove their lawful checkpoint and, expecting the worst, the Gidimtin established a second checkpoint. On January 7th, 2019, Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers armed with batons and assault rifles crossed the Gidimtin checkpoint and arrested 14 people. On January 10th, The Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs met with RCMP officers and came to an agreement under the threat of continued state-sanctioned violence that they would comply with CGL's injunction. So now that we have that um, established, and please correct me if any of that is not up-to-date information, I wanted to now speak to, in the last two months, many media outlets have framed the Unistoten camp as a site of protest and resistance, Now, this portrayal confines the camp's existence solely in relationship to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Trans-Canada. So I'd love if you could begin by sharing the historical significance of the Unistoten camp in terms of reclamation and decolonization of community and connection to land. You know, what is the significance of this place beyond just the blockade?
1: Uh, You know, that's a really, really, really important thing to discuss, because I do think that the media has really sort of minimized the importance that this camp and this settlement, it's it's not a camp, because a camp implies something that's temporary, but it is a settlement where people have settled. It is not just a settlement of a few individuals, but it's a settlement of a community that's in the process of revitalizing and restoring, you know, the hereditary chief and clan house systems in not just as individuals with recognition and distinction, but as a restoration of what it means to be a clan house leader. And that means being back in your lands and territories, building that relationship, not just with your community, but building that relationship with land. And so some of the founders of the Unestoten settlement in 2010. So there was a the settlement really began in 2010, and in the summer of 2010, the some of the people that had been really sort of speaking out and <clears throat> joining the fight against the Alberta tar sands. And at that time, the territory was threatened by the Embridge Northern Gateway pipeline, which is now no longer a pipeline that's proposed. It's been taken away. The government has canceled that project, and that project was canceled largely in part from the participation of the folks at Unistotin, through the folks in uh, the Yinka-Dene Alliance, through the folks uh, Haida Kauai, uh, all the First Nations along the corridor in British Columbia and, and, and parts of Alberta. And so there's a long history of these people looking to defend this land and this territory um, and restore it under the rightful jurisdiction of the hereditary leadership of the communities in that region. And so what I've seen and what I've witnessed is not just a protest and a camp be developed, but I've seen and I've witnessed how this land has been transformed into a place where people are reconnecting with their culture, with their identity, with what it means to have indigenous governance and leadership in a true way that is connected and not governed by individuals, but really governed by the land. And that's really what we would talk about decolonization and this camp and this settlement and this protest and this, this action that's going off in BC is we minimize what it's meaning for the people and what it means for decolonization if we just talk about it as a protest and a camp. This is a place where people are beginning that process of true decolonization. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. You know, the basic foundation of decolonization is a return of and connection to land. And when we start there, we start to see how it builds upon the languages that connects us to those places, the culture that connects to those places, and the governance, what it means to be governed by that land and protected in relationship with that land. And that is what the hereditary and clan house leaders of the Wet'suwet'en have been doing in that territory for the last 10 years. And they're being threatened by the continued neoliberal agenda of the Canadian and international government to diminish what indigenous sovereignty and governance really looks like.
0: Now, I was reading that undergoing the threats of violence, the Wet'suwet'en chiefs agreed to comply with the CGL's injunction under the terms that RCMP would not interfere with traditional practices or trapping. A lot of what you had just spoken to around these traditional practices and ways of keeping culture alive Yet in late January, the Wet'suwet'en Nation stated that the CGL was intentionally destroying trap lines and tents and throwing them in shipping containers, then informing members that they had 24 hours to collect their belongings before they were dumped. Additionally, the Wet'suwet'en Nation also says that CGL does not have a proper archaeological impact assessment. So I'm wondering if you could shed some light on these developments and if this is a sort of blatant disregard displayed during an interim injunction, what is it going to look like should full-scale construction begin?
1: (laughs) That's a really good point as well. I mean, first off, this is an interim injunction. A full injunction hasn't been granted. And this is a, a company that has been illegally granted a license to the land and territory in this region. And when I say legal, it's, it's very complex. And a lot of people are like, well, didn't chief sign agreements with uh, CGL and, And yeah, they did. And so, but here's the issue. (laughs) And I I just want to like name this first is that there were representatives of the Wet'suwet'en, Office of the Wet'suwet'en, which is funded and governed under a system that has been imposed in the region by the colonial government of Canada. And so there's an elected chief and council system that has been imposed to all First Nations across, across what is now known as Canada. And these systems are not only sort of dictated, sort of top-down by colonial systems, but they're also funded. And so there's a vested interest in these communities that and these systems of governance to comply with government policies, you know, injunctions, uh, projects. But the reality is, is the way that the system works in Canada is that the government gets to grant licenses for leases, for exploration, and for development of projects without consultation. So the first step of even just licensing for exploration is granted without consent with with those nations. And then then there's a complicating factor with the the Wet'suwet'en, is that in 2015, like you said, they came together to say that they would protect these lands and territories from the expansion of pipelines and development in the region. And that's because there was a shift in the way that the Wet'suwet'en was governed at that time. At that time, In this sort of post truth and reconciliation era in the country, we saw the re emergence and resurgence of hereditary chieftain recognition across the country, particularly in places like British Columbia, but not solely in British Columbia or what is now known as British Columbia. And so, what we had is that the Wet'suwet'en has now these people that are like, we want to bring back our clan systems, we want to bring back hereditary chiefs, but they have this elected chief and council system that the government of Canada works with and they have a vested interest in working with them because they have them literally hook, line, and sinker through a funding mechanism. Hereditary chief systems and the resurgence of clan houses do not have that same connection. They are not beholden to you know the administrative funding and dollars of the colonial government. And so when they make decisions, they're making those decisions based on the rule of the land and the rule of their people. And the government, in my opinion, Probably take some real big concern with that because they don't have those communities. With their the interests aren't with the colonial system. Their interests are with their lands and territories. Their interests are with the communities. And so in twenty fifteen, what we saw is not just this resurgence and reemergence, but in Wet'suwet'en, they they created a board of directors that was comprised of the hereditary. Uh, chiefs and clan house leaders of the Wet'suwet'en became the board of directors for the elected systems of the Wet'suwet'en. And it's super complicated, but we have to recognize that there's a there's a duality that's happening here. And the government, Canadian government, constantly relies on that elected system to give those sanctions, including the agreement to remove the blockades so that they could come in. Um, and that that agreement that they came to in January was to really avoid violence. And and I think there was a lot of people that were, were very concerned about violence. There were women, there were children, there were elders, there were people that did not want to experience violence, had never experienced such violence before. And, and they did what they thought was best. But the reality is, is that they need to ensure that the the governance and the recognition of hereditary chief systems is included in our processes for determining what happens to our lands and territories and that's actually upheld by a Canadian Supreme Court case called Degahalk which which affirmed sovereignty to lands and territories in the region in 1997 so we have a history that recognizes hereditary chief systems, recognizes governance over our lands and territories. But instead what we're having is that the government is relying on antiquated systems that were imposed on indigenous communities during the, you know, first wave colonization to really like support a system that supports the interest of the colonial government and systems of white supremacy and diminishes and devalues hereditary chief systems and, traditional forms of governance. So when you see what's happening out there with these, you know, RCMP coming in and destroying um, and not just the RCMP, but, you know, CGL and the RCMP coming in, destroying the blockades. At one point, the RCMP had taken over the gidip, gidimtim, um, a checkpoint and they were using their sort of house that they had built, their little cabin to stay in as a checkpoint. They were burning the firewood that had been chopped by Indigenous people to keep themselves warm after they had confiscated that that checkpoint you know and then when they were done with it they destroyed it and that is really a very clear depiction of of like how colonization is still happening to this day they literally force us off our lands and territories use our resources take them and then destroy what's left of our people and and really destroy you know the remnants of what we had and they'll be like oh you can have it back now and I know this also all too well because I come from the Alberta tar sands, where we have seen the destruction and the diminishing and the you know contamination of our territory for, for 60 years in the region. And these governments are like, look, we'll put it back, we'll reclaim it once we're done and you can have it back and it'll all be yours. But we've lost that time with it. We've lost our connections to it. They've destroyed it. They've changed those, those spaces that we develop such deep, intimate relationships and connections with. And I know those leaders that lived out at Unistoten for so long, and they were changed by the land. The land changes you when you have that relationship with it and I know you know that living out in the in the redwoods like the land changes you it changes how you relate to the world it changes how you relate to yourself and ultimately it changes how you your your value systems become less about you as an individual and more about you as a community in relation to the land and and the and the ecosystems and the planet and that's the most frustrating thing for me is that we're not just you know, relegating this, this land occupation, this settlement as a protest, but we are relegating and diminishing its importance in us addressing the largest crisis humanity has ever faced, which is the climate crisis. Right now, we need to be protecting these intact biodiverse regions. We need to be ensuring that our relationship is restored with the land in a real way so that we don't continue to to build the pathways to our own demise. And instead, we're vilifying these communities. We are relegating these things to acts of protest against colonial systems rather than upholding these peoples as um, the leaders for what we need to do in order to restore not just our relationship with each other, but restoring our relationship with the land. I really appreciate you
0: going through the complexities of present day colonization, because I think it's so important to realize that colonization isn't something that happened in the past. It wasn't 500 years ago, it wasn't 300 years. I mean, it was then, but it's also now. And for people to not be aware of that or to not acknowledge that and to kind of just acknowledge colonization as something happened in a textbook, you know, with a painted picture of um, (laughs) colonizers coming over in a boat. It's like, that's, it's still happening today. And, and then just the complexities around the um, confusion between the hereditary and the elected leadership amongst first nations. And it's so important to clarify that band councils are elected every two years, whereas hereditary chiefs are prepared for this role from a very young age and remain the title holders and authority over unceded lands. You know, while ban councils were introduced in 1876 as a part of an assimilation policy, it's important to acknowledge that the Supreme Court of Canada recognized the hereditary system in 1997. Um, You already kind of spoke to this, but if you could also maybe more in-depth speak to how this confusion, or maybe how is this confusion a strategy used both by industry and colonial government to feign the appearance of consent when it comes to development and extraction? Does Canada's federal government rely upon the division between hereditary and elected leaders as a tool to aid
1: in the ongoing project of re-territorialization? You know, I think like that. You hit the nail on the head when you're like these band council systems were a tool in the attempted assimilation of indigenous peoples. And you know, there's this real importance of the resurgence and the reemergence of hereditary leadership. Um, but it's not just just to this time in present history. Um, you know, we have seen hereditary leaderships, clan house leaders, um, come to the surface during the. During Ghanasatage and Ghanawage in 1990, which is commonly known as the Oka crisis, which is such a terrible name for it, um, we they, it was clan house leaders. It was the, the long house leaders that stepped up and said, nope, we're not going to take this. We're going to stand in the way. And there was a division in the community even back then. So this isn't a new issue in the country. And In that time, it's the same thing. The government relied and went to continually over and over and over again to that elected system and they propped them up as the most rational because it is a system that they created it is a system that they have a vested interest in and not just a vested interest in but a vested financial um relationship with and it's a really really broken structure that really diminishes and devalues the importance of uh these hereditary and um you know clan house systems that that are more and more coming to the surface in this post-truth truth and reconciliation area, era. But the government doesn't want to recognize it, again, because of the fact that we're talking about communities that don't have a history of making impact benefit agreements and signing funding contribution agreements with the government. These are leaders that are driven by and governed by their communities that are governed by their relationships, with the lands and the ecosystems. And that's a scary thing for for the colonial government to really have to take on because they don't have that bargaining chip. They don't have that. We're going to stand here and we're going to offer you money for this, that and the other. These are leaders that have said unanimously, we don't care how much money you give us. We will never support these projects in our lands and territories. And when we're talking about colonial governments that are really driven on systems of wealth and capitalism and patriarchy and all of the the systems, the isms that, that f- further serve to marginalize and oppress people of color and indigenous folks, you start to see why it's so important that we invite and welcome new forms of governance. And so for me, one of the biggest things that I've been really thinking about and struggling when people are like, well, we we can't have like all these different systems. And how are we going to know how to deal with this? And how are we going to know how to talk to, who do we talk to? They they act like it's this impossible, never-ending thing that they'll never be able to figure out. But I just, I really, really beg to differ on that one because I do think we need more diversity. Not just in the biodiverse regions of the world. Climate crisis has said, you know, within the UNFCCC reports and the IPCC reports that we need to conserve and protect biodiversity. We talk about biodiversity as being something critical to our survival, not just human survival, but all species survival. But we only think of biodiversity in a sense of like plants, flora and fauna. But biodiversity also comes in the way that we act and move in the world pre-colonization of the Americas, I think about how many languages there were, how many different clans there were, how many different communities there were with their own sets of governance driven by their own lands and territories, driven by their their own communities, and how beautiful it would have been to be in a place with so much rich diversity, not just in the land and the ecosystems, but in the people. We have to have biodiversity and colonization and colonial structures are trying to homogenize Humanity. You know, we're trying to homogenize humanity on a, on a foundation of white supremacy. And this assimilation is not just to, to in, you know, in Australia, they actually tried to breed out the black folks. And in Canada, they tried to assimilate us through policies. And they're trying to erase our indigenous heritage and erase the biodiversity of the peoples that we are across this great continent. And so for me, I think about how important it is for us to think about about and respect and realize and recognize the necessity of the different types of governance that come in this country and that there can't be one ultimate superpower. There can't be one, you know, Justin Trudeau making all of the decisions for all of the lands and resources in this country. We have to have those that are connected to place to help us determine what's going to be the best pathway forward, not just for the communities in that place, but for all communities that exist on, on Turtle Island, that exist on Mother Earth. Wow, Ariel, that was such a beautifully spoken...
0: I feel very resonant with it, and I so deeply agree. Now, I want to start talking about some things that are not more disturbing than what we've been discussing, but disturbing in the intelligence-gathering realms... So I was reading that in 2014 and 2015, the RCMP gathered intelligence on spying, basically on 313 First Nations activists. In fact, a leaked government operations center document identified Unistoten Camp as a quote, ideological and physical focal point of Aboriginal resistance to resource extraction projects, end quote. Now, additionally, over the years, RCMP has described Wet'suwet'en protectors as extremist. So it's pretty clear to me that the police don't care about, quote, enforcing laws or assessing true risk to the public, but instead they're in the business of suppressing serious movements that have the capacity to be tremendously, extremely successful in disrupting the flow of commodity. So I'd really like if you could share more about the history between RCMP and the Wet'suwet'en Nation. And
1: then what is this signal to you about the fate of future protest movements? I think that Indigenous folks in Canada and the United States have been labeled as extremists and activists for, for some time. You look at AIM, you look at Oka, and now you look at Unistoten and Wet'suwet'en. And you realize that any time Indigenous peoples rise up against colonial structures and try to reaffirm and assert their sovereignty, autonomy, and self-determination, which are all tenets of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, by the way, that they are, are labeled as uh, renegades, as threats to the state. Because frankly, we are threats to the state, but we're not threats to the state in the way that they want to present us publicly. We're threats to the state in having in their foothold of being the ultimate superpower in determining what's best for all people, including us in that patriarchal colonial sense. And We are a threat to that in that sense, but we're not a threat to, you know, the general public. And that's the the misconception that needs to be broken. And neither was AIM and neither was Oka. This is not a threat to the general public. These are people that are talking about trying to stop the threat to Mother Earth, to their lands and territory, to the sanity of humanity in restoring those relationships with place. And... Uh, You know, colonization and systems of white supremacy and capitalism and neoliberalism are predicated on systems that pull us away from our relationship to land. That's why decolonization in its simplest form is reconnecting to place. It's reconnecting to land. And so I think about how we've been completely criminalized for doing what is actually quite natural. And that is a a symptom of the sickness that is so pervasive in systems of colonization. And again, we can go back further in the history of of the colonization of the Americas to when we were labeled as renegades and rebels. You know, in Canada, we also have something called the Real Rebellion. And I don't know enough about American history, so I apologize. But in Canada, they call it the Real Rebellion. But I've been speaking with a lot of Métis folks. And they're like, it wasn't a rebellion. It was the Métis resistance. You know, we were resisting the systems of colonial pressures and colonial oppression. And they labeled us all as rebels. You know, anytime Native folks and Indigenous folks rose up and fought back against the colonial governments and and white folks died, they referred to it as massacres. But when when it was white folks killing Indigenous folks, it was referred to as a battle. And it's much more distinguished rather than criminalized. And you can see it just in the nuances of the way English language, a colonial language, has made us these villains in the story. When in actuality, the villains that came here and literally killed millions of peoples across the America through germ warfare, through direct violence and, and, and you know, the destruction of our food sources, the culling of the buffalo. You know, we're talking about, you know, burning down food crops and all the crazy, massive, the massacres that occurred on this continent at the hands of colonial governments that have painted a history. The history continues to paint us to this day as the villains. We are still painted as the villains in this country. And that's what's happening right now. Um, we are not a threat to the Canadian public, but we, what we are a threat to is really opening up and and um, putting a magnifying glass on the true history of these colonial governments and how it has detached not just Indigenous folks, but all people from what needs to be governing us, which is our relationships to land, our relationships to each other, our interspecies relationships, and how we need to be moving forward in this world, and it would, you know, put a huge wedge and draw a put a big magnifying on the glass that our systems are fundamentally broken. That's what we're threatening. We're not threatening people. We're threatening systems that are actually a part of our our demise on this planet here. You know, our, our time here on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. A demise to
0: everyone, including. The people who are on top of the system, um, exactly. You know, it's it's the demise of everything. It's not, it, and and I think the bravery to stand up and put one's life on the line for the land, but really for the survival of all species, including humans. Um, it's really, uh, I I have so much deep respect, and I I just think back to what you were saying about. Well, when the colonizers won, it's a victory, it's a battle, it's, you know, the the narrative of what uh, people are still very much taught. This isn't in the past that at some point in the past hundred years, people were taught the wrong history. No, this is still very alive and well, this false narrative that is written by the colonizers. And even, you know, I was uh, traveling with Jade Begay this summer through Alaska and British Columbia talking to indigenous elders and fisher folk and we were going to these um you know a few you know small museums and just even reading the i don't know what they're called but those stands that kind of you know you walk around and you see a totem pole and then you see this written placard and even the placards in British Columbia in Alaska are such bullshit. I mean the history that's still being taught to tourists. So these tourists are coming up and reading this just complete lies, just complete and utter lies. And uh, I um, I just think the threat that the government is trying to spin on indigenous folks or other activists that are trying to protect all life, You know, of course, it's just a tactic that we need to see through. And we also have to know that this surveilling of land and water protectors is, of course, it's just as rampant in the so-called United States. For example, I was reading that the police in Minnesota have spent a year and a half preparing for a standoff over in Bridge Line 3. They're using security firms and private intelligence And the police have utilized informants, online monitoring, aerial surveillance, and eavesdropping to identify possible anti-pipeline camps and protectors. So, I I just want to speak even more about the strengthening of the relationship between the oil industry and local law enforcement. And how can we resist the coalescing of this national security apparatus and private interest?
1: (laughs) You know, under this this illusion of free market capitalism that we a lot of people were under the assumption that state and corporations were separate entities for a long time. And I think that um, the veil is really being lifted in this era of of extreme crisis on on planet Earth. You know, we're in this crisis of either continuing a pathway to the cliff's edge. <laughs> or literally putting up a blockade to stop the masses from going over the edge. And it's Indigenous folks, um, it's our allies, it's those that have literally taken the blinders off and are seeing the world for what it is that are calling it out. And I'm not sure why we want to continue to perpetuate these systems of of state and, and corporate interests, but I used to be a researcher for um, an organization called the Federation of Saskatchewan Indian Nations, now known as Federation of Sovereign Indian Nations in Saskatchewan. And I spent six and a half years as an archival researcher and an oral history researcher. So I I supplemented uh, oral history with archival research, and I spent a lot of time reading um, you know, correspondence for the for the, the the settlement and the development of the Dominion of Canada. And I can tell you that corporate interests and colonial government interests have always been together. Uh, during the the settlement of Canada, they wanted to create the what is the Canadian Northern Railway and the and the railway system across the country. And that company, you know, wrote and petitioned to the, the the Crown and the Indian agents to ensure that those pathways were left open and that indigenous folks or Indians didn't receive land within those areas. And they actually requested a certain amount of distance be created from those development areas to ensure that they didn't deter other other white settlers from settling in those regions. And those requests were granted. Um, and then you look a little bit further in history and you look at when the agricultural belt of Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta was being created and you also see the same thing, you know, farmers not wanting Native people near where they were hoping to build crops and also pushing Native folks from selling their crops from their lands uh, to the general market. And you again, you know, these were these were small businesses, but you saw that the colonial governments always upheld and those that were were white those that wanted to uh, oppress and diminish the value of indigenous you know goods services (laughs) communities culture languages have always been pushed to the side and paved the way for corporate interests you know many of these small farms are now major agribusinesses that have that take up the the agricultural belt in in uh, the prairie provinces of canada and you continue to see these these corporate interests like these are the foundations i mean look at the very foundation of Canada, which was built on the fur trade, you know, Canada was declared large parts of what is now known as Canada was declared the property of the King of France with zero consultation. And he sold it to the dominion of Canada, uh, without any consultation with the indigenous peoples here. And it was a corporate transaction to a corporation, So the foundations of this country are really embedded in corporate interests. And now in modern day, what we're seeing is that we thought under, you know, This idea of free market capitalism, the ability for the individual to grow, but it was only under the individuals of certain individuals, those with power, those with direct links and ties to those making decisions about the lands and governance under the colonial systems and laws, you know, whether that's presidents in the United States or governors or whether it's, you know, provincial leaders um, or prime ministers in, in Canada, we have always had corporations looking to those in power to grant them the rights to do things and push the, the most oppressed out of their way. We are still seeing that right now with the, you know, the coastal gas link, with the Alberta tar sands, with the Bakken oil fields, with the multitude of pipelines that are coming out of Alberta tar sands, with mega hydro projects in Eastern Canada, you know, Muskrat Falls, Sightsea Dam, mega hydro in British are in Manitoba. And the list goes on and on, you know, the bayou, (laughs) the bayou pipelines and offshore drilling, Arctic drilling, so on and so forth. These corporations, are constantly looking to the government and their agents, which in this case, the RCMP, um, to ensure the safe removal of those that stand in the way of their businesses. And that is the foundations of this country. And it's still alive and true. And we're just seeing it all coming out in their true colors, are starting to, to play out in the public discourse because of things like social media and independent media, um, like this podcast and like so many other things. You know, Democracy Now! has been a great uh, purveyor of, of sharing the stories that are untold. I really feel
0: your passion and your. Um, Maybe this is forward of me to say, but your sacred rage in this discussion. And I feel like more of us need to feel this fire under us and not get so comfortable in our day-to-day lives because I really feel that mainstream media and so much that we're being force-fed by the system is to keep us complacent. And so when we hear voices like yours, they shock us out of this Falsehood that many of us are kind of clouded in this conditioning can blind us from really feeling that energetic burst to do something about it. And I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure now because I know at the heart of so many global struggles for justice lies infrastructure. And we've talked to people all over the world. I was just thinking about our last interview around the Amazon, and uh, logging, illegal logging, mining there, and this infrastructure, which of course extractive industry is really solely dependent upon. So I'd love if you could speak to our dependence on infrastructure, and how it's really directly enabling the oppression of others, and ultimately ourselves. When the state is prioritizing the protection and expansion of infrastructure over people, I'm wondering how can we... Remove ourselves from an infrastructure-dependent economy.
1: You know, I've been reading this really, really great book um, called "Joyful Militancy" by Nick Montgomery and Carla. I think it's Carla Bergman, but I might have that wrong. I apologize. It's called "Joyful Militancy." It's a really interesting book that really sort of talks about that. Like this, that's a really, really deep problem that we have as. Those that have this deep rage to want to rise up against the system is that we are still embedded in it. You know, we're still ultimately reliant on it. Um, And how do we create something different? And I've been really struggling with that for a really long time. You know, particularly when I was doing a lot of Tar Sands campaigning. You know, I was a Tar Sands campaigner for for ten years, working with my First Nation, and that was always the problem: is how do we how do we stop a project, you know, the largest industrial project on planet earth that requires all the infrastructure, like transmission lines, water system, like water rights. Like they, you know, Albert Tarzan's on some of the most water rights. They, they, they're building the communications towers. They're building the roadways. They're building the bridges. They're building the, the transmission lines. They're doing all of this stuff that then the public then relies on. And then, to you know, make things worse. A lot of these corporations are also um, bankrolling our social systems. So it, they pay for the, you know, they, they donate heavily to educational institutions, to uh, sports and recreation institutions. You know, if you come to Fort McMurray, and I'm sure it's the same if you go down to the Bakken, I'm sure it's the same if you go down to uh, the Gulf of Mexico, that these corporations have sponsored the hospitals, they sponsor, you know, youth programs, they sponsor cultural <laughs> revitalization programs in northern Canada, they sponsor everything. And we become completely entangled and reliant on these systems. And so one of the biggest challenges I know that we faced in Alberta was how do we talk about ending the expansion and the development of an industry that we rely on not just for the infrastructure but for jobs for employment for for putting roofs over our heads and food on the table and clothes on our children's backs is we have to envision something different and it's not easy but it's possible and we have to build that and i think for me what i'm learning through this book joyful militancy is that it comes not from like actively necessarily and not saying that you have to stop it, but it's the act alone of trying to smash colonization and end, you know, the pipeline and end these projects is alone in itself is not going to save us. What's going to save us is building community. It means sitting down with people and eating food with them and connecting with them and supporting them in ways that might seem really mundane, you know, helping someone care for their child, helping someone to to learn how to knit or learn a skill or like learn simple things and building relationships that are not reliant on the empire, not reliant on these systems. And i that's, you know, let's go back full circle. Let's go back to Una Stouten. That's what they were doing. They were building a community that was not reliant on the infrastructure, that was not reliant on the contribution funding agreements from the federal government. It was not relying on the transmission lines of oil and gas companies. It was not reliant on those jobs. It was not reliant on anything but community. When they built their pit house, they built it with community. They built it with the the trees on the land. They built it together together. And then they sat and they ate so many meals together. They sat around the fires together and they fostered a community that relied on each other rather than a structure that is so pervasive in pulling us apart and detaching that connection of community. And so, you know, again, I go back to this book is like, that's what we need to do. We need to be finding more spaces and carve out more places where we're fostering communities that are not reliant on empire, that are reliant on our community relations.
0: I'm thinking about how the system sets us up to be disposable to each other. And what you're talking is reminding me that it's really the opposite of that. When we're building community, we do rely on one another for taking care of each other, for taking care of our families. But when we're in this capitalist colonial system, we can just you know, extract resources, make money to buy our way out of having community, of being actually reliable to one another, to being accountable to one another, and to create community that is opposing this type of lies of rugged individualism that in itself is subversive in such a beautiful way and i think really so much at the core of how we can move forward and like you were saying you know imagining a, a way out and removing ourselves from this whether it's the infrastructure dependent economy this capitalist resource extractive dependent economy and and of course we know that when we talk about resource extraction it's not just oil or some type of fossil fuel in the ground, resources are also humans. It's also our relationships with one another is how this system even looks at those as resources to be squandered.
1: So yeah, I really I, <laughs> I think that's really I think that's really important too is that again when I talked about pre-colonization in the Americas, like we had this biodiversity of, of communities that were all very unique in their languages, their cultures, their relationship with the lands, the foods that they ate. But there was huge um, routes of, of trade. There were huge, um, you know, trade lines and, you know, systems that were economies, economy-based systems where there were routes of trade. But communities relied on each other. And, you know, they relied on coming together at certain times of the year and trading their goods and and sharing their stories and sharing their teachings and sharing the things they'd learned on the land. And those were essential. And it required face to face community time, sitting together, eating together, being together. And it's that those same systems that we're talking about that are being vilified. Where Canada's biggest threat in the country is the indigenous resistance is is one of the largest threats to the Canadians. Government. And, and like, that's the reality is, is that it questions, and it challenges those systems as not being in the best interests of people. And so we're talking about trying to create structures that are not predicated on individualism, that are not predicated on the accumulation of, of wealth and success and notoriety and the American dream. But we're talking about systems that require you to admit that you are vulnerable, to admit that you are a small, humble creature on this planet that requires other people to survive. And instead, the American um, dream, North American dream is really on like, how successful can you be as an individual? What have you done with your life? Instead of what are you doing with community? How are you working together? How are you supporting your neighbor? Because back in the to- in the day, like you were nothing unless you had community. You were nothing unless you had those people that Supported you and you supported them back in a reciprocal relationship, and we have lost this this ideology of um, reciprocation, not just with each other but within the natural world. And you know that was a, one of the things in the write up of the RCMP is that the ideological foundations of the Unistotin camp are you know are a threat to to the Canadian public, and it's a threat not to the Canadian public, but it's a threat to the systems that have been driven down our throats for the last 500 years here. Hmm. I was
0: reading that in January, the police blocked access to one of the roads outside of Houston, B.C., and officers proceeded to tell journalists that they were not allowed to enter the site of the raids due to, quote, safety concerns. However, the broadcasting network, Aboriginal People's Television Network, Notice that company workers had no problem entering and did not face threats of obstruction. No surprise. But I really would like for you to speak and share about the violation of press freedoms that took place and the dangers
1: that this precedent sets. You know, I think again it's part of that colonial narrative that they want to tell. Like they get to be these are a threat to the Canadian public. They get to control the narrative through the you know, their media machines, through their storytelling and it it it's like that you know, let's let's talk about the way history is written. History is written through the lens of a colonial, the colonial white man. And when journalists are going in and they they wanted to see the story from from all perspectives and from all sides of the the narrative, that is the threat to the colonial structure as well. And so you know they have a vested interest again, just like they do in trying to vilify indigenous folks. Is that uh, press is going to come in and they're going to tell the wrong story and they lose control. And a lot of this is all about like power and control. And there's an important role in in the press and the media, having unfettered access to tell stories from like an unbiased perspective so that the truth can be actually told. And so we need press to be able to go into those spaces to see them, particularly in places like the Wet'suwet'en and the Unistot'en territories, because those are areas that have no cellular service. Um, again, they they lack the infrastructure that we're so reliant on, and so when you have independent and regular media. They need to go in because if we don't have those people that are coming in with an unbiased perspective telling that story, then the story that's going to get told is going to be really um, polarized. It's going to come from one person saying one thing, another person saying one thing, and and uh, then it's like, well, who's telling the truth? And when you look at how the colonial government has already laid the foundations to vilify Unistoten, to vilify Wet'suwetin, their story comes. Out as well. They have a history of being this and that and the other. Whereas we have this dominant narrative that the RCMP are heroes. They're here to protect us. They're here to like sh- ensure the safety of all people. When the reality is, is that in the in the case of the. Gedimtyn blockade, the Unistoten camps—that they came in there with violent force. They pushed their way into territories where they were told they were not welcome, where they were told they did not have jurisdiction, and they forced their way in. The reality is, is that they're they're enforcing jurisdiction on our lands and territories to uphold the rights of corporations over the rights of Indigenous communities, and. I just don't understand how they continue to be the hero while indigenous communities continue to be the villain. And it's so important that independent media, that media gets in to start telling the real story so that we can start to unravel the real history of, of what colonization has done to indigenous peoples and what colonization has done to our understanding of who are the villains and who are the heroes in our stories. I
0: guess my, Last question is around, you know, the kind of question of what can we do type of question. But I also want to really speak to the truth around that because I know at one time, you know, even a, up a, around a month ago, people were like, oh, we're going to go to Udenstoten camp. Whether it was non-native people, people, you know, ally activists, people that were hearing it up in the news, and I know a lot of times it's not the best thing to just get in a car and drive up to the camp or, you know, of course we need to really be intentional and listen around how outsiders can support movements and specifically the Unistoten camp right now. So maybe just kind of give us a sense of where they're at at this moment and what is the best way to support for those of us who are not on the front lines, but rather on the sidelines, looking in, wanting to support, but um, really being able to take a step back and listen to what is actually helpful and not things that are just going to get in the way and create more complexity and, and more struggle for those that are on the front lines.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important that we listen to the communities themselves and take as much direction as possible from them. You know, they have a really great website. It's unistoten.camp. I encourage people to go check it out. They update it quite regularly. There is a supporter toolkit that they've created for people. But what's happening is that this is long from over. The coastal, coastal, <laughs> coastal gas link, or CGL in Trans Canada, this project is still on the books and the Wet'suwet'en office and the people of the Wet'suwet'en are going to challenge this project. That is, they've made that very clear over and over again. um, And they're going to do whatever they can in their power to ensure that it is not completed. And they want to do it in a respectful way. They want to avoid violence, obviously. Um, and that's why they signed the agreement to pull down the, the blockades. But at the same time, they need respect of their lands and territory. I mean, we're already seeing the destruction of, of uh, an essential trap line in the region. We've seen the destruction of the Gidimtim, you know, settlement. There are threats to the UNistotan settlement. Um, you know, people on the ground is always appreciated, but they want people that understand and know the the territory they don't want strangers that have not been a part of the struggle for a long time so please be cognizant of that like if you are planning on going there you you have to have and it's for security purposes is you have to have some sort of connection to the community um but you know they keeping that the land and the settlement up and going is an important part of this is that assertion of the utilization of this land in a traditional sense things that folks can do is check out the website. They have the supporter toolkit. Uh, they're still calling on people to continue to host actions, whether those are protests or screenings of films or panels and discussions on this, um, you know, sending sending letters um, to emails directly to the government or calling, you know, Canadian and uh, British Columbia representatives to show your support and respect of the Wet'suwet'en peoples. And of course, you know, this is not easy. The the fight is far from over and they really want to take this to the court systems and they want to revitalize the De gaulle court case and really bring it to the forefront around recognition of hereditary chief systems. That stuff's not free. You know, we're all bound to those systems of, of economies and capitalism and and, you know, sometimes you have to utilize those systems to fight them and I really, really think that folks need to continue to donate to the Legal Defense Fund because that's going to be a Long drawn out battle. Uh, donate to the to the access point to ensure that we can continue to occupy those lands and territories sign a pledge it's simple as that like if you and also I want to recognize that not everyone can go out there not everyone can donate not everyone can host an event um, because of all sorts of limitations and I don't want people to feel as though they're not contributing to this cause you know you can just sign a pledge you can educate your friends your neighbors by sharing information that is all available um, on the Una Stoughton camp and really just Trying to learn your best to understand the complexity of all of this and really doing your homework. I really encourage those that want to be a part of this to not just jump on the bandwagon and and say Wet'suwet'en strong, support Unistot'en, but take the time to understand the deep history of why this is what it is. Understanding the, the court cases and the nuances of hereditary chief systems versus elected chief systems, understanding the jurisdictional issues in the region, there's a lot of complexity. And if you're going to get involved and you want to start really getting involved, start understanding the real history of these people of these countries and take it one step further learn the history of your own region and your own territory and the histories of those people there because this isn't just a single story this is just a magnifying glass on a story that exists everywhere across turtle island and across the americas and you can learn more about our work, which supports these people, like folks like Wet'suwet'en, Tiny House Warriors, you know, all the indigenous communities that are really stepping up to be leaders in protecting lands and territory for the climate and for everyone. Um, and, of course, just check us out, indigenousclimateaction.com com across the country. And please do, if you're going to get involved in this, check out unistoten.camp. So that's U-N-I-S-T-O-N. T-E-N dot camp and take, take a moment to really learn about what's going on there. Thanks for listening to another episode of for the wild podcast. I'm audio producer, Andrew stores. The music you heard today was from wildlife freeway. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana young, as well as the rest of our podcast team,
0: Aiden McRae, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, Aaron Wise, Erica Ekrem, Melanie Younger, and Carter Lou McElroy.